Warm greetings to all of you and welcome back to Intersections, where our aspiration is to find a way to expand our sense of possibilities about human nature, about our own nature, by, by dissolving boundaries. And today, we have someone who has pursued this hunger, this desire to dissolve boundaries and to bring life to a much more sort of like whole person place through a very unique couple of parallel paths that have ultimately converged into something beautiful. I'm talking here about Rabbi Jevan Eagle, who is the university chaplain and executive director at Boston University Hillel. Rabbi Jevan Eagle has um, a very special resonance with me because he was actually my former boss <laughs> for a period of time when I was at McKinsey and Company. He has pursued you know, the conventional trappings of success in many regards for a large part of his career. He went to Dartmouth to get an AB in government and religion. He, while uh, he was there, he also, and, and then beyond, he helped uh, found the Jewish Lights Publishing Group to disseminate Jewish teachings in the print form in the early 1990s. He got an MBA from the Harvard Business School, uh, went on to work at McKinsey, became a young, fast, progressing partner at McKinsey in its retail and consumer practice went on to become an executive at the national retailer Staples, where he has served as the executive vice president of merchandising and marketing and was responsible for turning the easy button into a workplace sensation. He went on from there to become the CEO of a company, David Stee, which he ran very successfully before moving on. What he moved on to is the next part of the story that I want to come to in just a few seconds. In addition to that, he continues to be on the board of a public company, Carter's, which is the largest branded marketer in the United States and Canada of apparel and related products for children and babies. Um, so now I spoke to you about, you know, the parallel path that he's been on as well. And that is his Jewish journey. So Rabbi Jebin has had a lifelong commitment to the Jewish community. He has been on the boards of several you know, Jewish community organizations, continues to chair the Harvard and Boston University Hillel. And more recently, you know, after his stint with David Stee, he completed his master's in Jewish studies and received rabbinic ordination from Hebrew College in 2019. And that ultimately led him to his present place where he is at the Boston University Hillel as the executive director and university chaplain. Jevin resides in Boston, Massachusetts. He is uh, also spending part of his time in Queechy, Vermont. He's married with two daughters. He's got a great passion for wine, as you will see as we discover more about uh, the rabbi's very colorful you know, life journey. Uh, in addition to Judaism and business, he's also really passionate about exercise. He's a voracious reader, and he has studied and taught with great heart and devotion wine. On that note, let me bring into our midst Rabbi Jevin. Rabbi, it is great to see you. Welcome. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you so much, Atendra. I need to correct two things that you just said, which, by the way, my mother would be very happy to hear your, your introduction. One is I never felt like I was your boss. I always <laughs> felt like I was your colleague and your student because I was always learning from you. And the other is I must humbly say I was one of the people on the team behind the easy button. I was not the one person <laughs> responsible for it. <laughs> well, I think uh, right there for our listeners, you know, you are um, exemplifying the values that I've always been so inspired by in you, where you're always turning the limelight on the rest of the team. 
Rabbi. And that was something that um, won my heart when I was uh, at McKinsey. I, I want to come back to that story. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for sharing those, those yeah. beautiful remarks. Shall we start, um, you know, closer to the, the early stage of your life where you, you're born, you're being raised, you're going to school. And then at some point, I guess, you know, that sense of self-definition and choice making comes to us as to who I want to be when I grow up, what kind of life I want to lead and all of that. When did that kind of awareness and choice making start happening for you? So for me, the, the real issue was growing up in this intense community on Long Island where there was such a drive to be better, to do better, to do well in life. And in that environment, I had lots and lots of Jews around me, but no Judaism. And I had lots and lots of educated people around me, but not a lot of learning going on. And when I went to college, I realized that I felt somewhat empty, somewhat lacking. And like today, the number one problem, in my opinion, with college students is loneliness. I think it's actually maybe the number one problem in, in general in our society. I had an aspect of me that was lonely, that was lacking, was curious enough and had enough energy to actually go do something about it. And what was that something that you chose to do about it? I think you're speaking to the angst of our times, but also something that all of us relate to. I mean, I, I remember going through a similar feeling that, um, you know, I, I don't completely belong here. I'm stimulated by my college academic and social life, but I, I don't completely belong here. I belong somewhere else and I need to discover my true home. We learned right in the beginning of the Bible, in the second chapter of Genesis, where human is created and human is alone. And the text says it is not good for a human to be alone. It's, it's just not, that's not how we were created. And so I felt in some respects, this aspect of loneliness, because I wasn't part of a big story and part of something. When I arrived at, at, at Dartmouth, I was very lucky that a Hillel rabbi put his arm around me, basically said, join us, you're not alone. And that's how my Jewish journey began with a, a person putting his arm around me and being invited into a community where there seemed to be something different than what I experienced. There seemed to be this collective desire to engage in something more than yourself, something that was more, uh, more lasting than, than what I had been used to. And I realized when I showed up, by the way, how little I knew at the time. And by the way, how little I still know today along this journey. Wow. Yeah. So... I hear some of the outer shifts that started to happen when you're surrounded by kindred spirits who are highly supportive and seeking to really connect and give you the feeling of belonging. Did you also, as part of that journey, then start to experience any shifts from within? Uh, so there was the outer part of it, you know, shed a little bit of light with us on the inner, inner part of the shifts that you were going through? Yeah, so I had, believe it or not, I had never really prayed in my life before. I had been in a synagogue, but I had never actually prayed. To me, the definition of prayer is service of the heart, to open up my heart and to communicate to the ineffable, to communicate with God. There's no way my family ever would have discussed that. <laughs> so I had been introduced to this by this community of people whose primary action each week was getting together on Friday nights at the end of the week and to disengage from the things they had been doing and to engage in a communal act of prayer, a communal act of, of praising God and speaking with God, and then doing the religious act of eating uh, a holy meal together. 
that was the main, that was what we were doing. Of course, what we were also doing was becoming part of something, being part of a community um, and engaging with people and things of meaning. But the, the prayer was, was eye-opening to me. And actually, as you, as you fast forward much later in my life to rabbinic school, my favorite thing in rabbinic school was praying. Mm -hmm. I love, love learning, but the prayer was off the charts. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Tracing my own journey around the same age that you were at, um, I was escaping from college and going to a couple of ashrams in India and really enjoying the silent meditations there and interacting with some of the monks there. And, and then I would come back into college and it would be a whole different milieu of people. So it wasn't at college, but it was an escape from college for me. You were fortunate, it sounds like, to find that community right there, thriving, flourishing at Dartmouth itself. When I was in rabbinic school, we studied, one of our classes was an education class where there's been research done on what needs people have at various stages in their life. And it's pretty much proven that we all have a need throughout our life to connecting to higher purpose and meaning. That's what it means to be a human. Uh, for many of us, the way of connecting is not organized formal religion, but I believe for all of us, we have that need. And there's actually a, some scientific work that's been done that proves that there's actually a peak desire for this connection. And it takes place between the ages of 18 and 24. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. And so it's not surprising that you and I were both seeking that out. By the way, when I was at Dartmouth, as part of this journey, I went to study in Jerusalem uh, during, during the summer between my junior and senior year. And I met the first people ever who I would say their primary concern when they woke up each day was being religious, was connecting to God and performing God's commandments in order to uh, have that relationship with God. I had not, even at college, I hadn't met anyone like that before. And who were these people? Well, they were actually two young guys in particular who are on my program. One was at SUNY Albany and one was at Princeton. They had been brought up in very religious households, modern but religious households. And I had never met anyone like this before. That their primary purpose each day was serving God, was doing God's meets vote, God's commands. They were praying three times a day. They were very careful about everything they ate and their actions. And it was very, and then I was introduced to a yeshiva in Jerusalem where there were many other people like that. And I found that very seductive, very, very, very exciting. Do you um, think that there are others who have then experienced the same stirrings since you mentioned that science around the 18 to 24 age group who may have perhaps like sampled a little bit, but not felt comfortable occupying that space given how how important and central their mainstream life commitments were to them. I, I just wonder. If yeah, absolutely. Uh, lots and lots of people, by the way, including me, because I didn't follow that path. I found that path very exciting, and that path had a lot of impact on me. My life is very different because of it, but I didn't end up in that world. I, I considered it, and I imagined myself living my life in Israel as an Orthodox Jew, and I ended up not picking that path. But I found it very exciting to see people seriously engaged in that endeavor because the endeavors I had been used to seeing were the endeavors of higher education at the highest possible level and pursuit of financial and economic well-being. By the way, there's nothing wrong with either of those. They're beautiful. And I, I have actually done both of those. But to me, a life of meaning and purpose must have the thing that those two didn't have, this connection to the ineffable. 
I don't believe a life of meaning and purpose has to have the economic or the educational, but how rich and beautiful it is when you can have all three. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, you've got this immersion happening. You go and visit Israel as well. You connect with some of these folks that are soaking it in and are living it moment to moment. And that inspires you, uplifts you. And then you go back into the classroom and into like social and club like activities at Dartmouth and beyond. And then you're applying for, you know, for your first job and everything. So when you're, when, when you're back in that world, uh, what impact did this have on that part of you? Well, I must say there was tension, actually far more tension then than there was later in my life. I really viewed these as separate possible paths, not complementary paths at the time, at least. When I came back from Israel, I spent, I don't know, four or five or six months kind of in that religious orthodox mindset where I wasn't working on the Sabbath and I was refraining from things and I was wearing a kippah full time. And I was pretty much the only person at Dartmouth doing that. And I have to say, it felt lonely. Hmm. And the whole purpose of what I was doing was to not feel lonely. Yeah. Well, that was a tension. And then there was a tension between this pull, this pull of my heart towards Judaism, the Jewish people, Israel, and this pull of what I had been programmed for growing up, the beautiful notion of advancing your life, your family's life through education and through through economic well-being. Those are beautiful and praiseworthy things. So there was that tension for me. And I really, I was, I certainly was pursuing the educational and, and financial part. What, were, what was the most prestigious job you could have at that time, 1988, coming out of college? It was consulting or investment banking. Those were the two options. I actually pursued both. And I also had an application to the Jewish Theological Seminary to go to rabbinic school. Oh, really? And I was seriously considering it. I had the application. I discussed it with my then rabbi. I discussed it with my parents and grandparents. I discussed it with my then girlfriend, who I'm now married to beautifully for 29 years. Um, and there was a lot of there was a lot of tension inside of me. And and there was a lot of pressure on me from, I would say, everyone to uh, to not pursue the rabbinic path. Right. Right. So. Uh, so but that was always since then, though, that was always in my mind, always part of what I dreamed of. Yeah. That reminds me of a moment when, as I was mentioning to you, I would go to you know these ashrams. And this one time, I was in high school, actually, I think in my 10th grade. And I, over the holidays, had gone there with my family. And I got so swept up you know, by this hunger, as you said, to connect with the ineffable, that I told my parents, like, please, just leave me here. You all go home. I don't know what's coming next, but I do know that right now, this is the place for me. This is where I want to be. I, I'm just like, every part of me is just so alive here. And... Um, and then they persuaded me out of it, you know, with the logic about the exams that were coming and the graduation that was important right. and all of that. And once I kind of left, you know, that you know, environment and went back, the, the stirring didn't come to me as strongly until I was twice that age. You know, there I was 16. And then it was when I was 32 that it really came to me in that strong way right. again. So. Well, one thing I do want to share, and I, I really do believe this, and and... There was a time in my life where I thought the forces that were advocating against rabbinic school were were not good forces. I no longer believe that. I believe they were good forces. And I believe if for people like you, you're a seeker. I'm a seeker. Ever since I worked with you, I've known that. I think that we need both our hearts and our minds seeking 
um, purpose and meaning. And I think they need to be in sync. And sometimes our hearts get too far ahead and sometimes our minds get too far ahead. And we just have to know, that's okay for a short amount of time, but, but we have to be very careful when it happens. And I think there are some people on religious paths that the heart gets far too ahead of the mind. And then what actually happens is it becomes destructive of community and of relationship. Only one of the first five commandments in the Torah is about, is about people and it's about honoring and respecting your parents. And you know, turning your back on your parents to pursue a religious path has a lot of contradiction in it. Wow, so, um, uh, it's beautiful. What a lovely frame to keep in mind for all of us. Uh, I know our listeners are gonna really value that, the idea about the heart and the mind being in sync and one getting a little bit ahead of the other, but not for too long and not too far out there. That's, that's such a beautiful- By the answer. way, I'll share with you, Hitendra, I have a lot of people who come to me for advice. And so there was a young person I've known for a long time, the son of someone I'm very close to, and he recently got a job offer at McKinsey. So he called me for, for my advice. Should I take it? Should I not? He wants to do X, Y, and Z in his future. We had, a, we had a long conversation about the pros and cons of McKinsey for his job. And then I said to him, we've missed the whole conversation here. We, we've discussed your job, but we haven't discussed your life. Mm-hmm. And his brain, his mind was far ahead of his heart. I said, we have to find out where your heart is. And we have to see how this fits into your life. Because your goal is not having a great career. Your goal is having a great life, of which yeah. your career is a very important part. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was it was like eye-opening for him. For me, it's now natural because I have the benefit of 54 years or 55 years now behind me. Yeah, yeah. So beautiful. Yeah, the communities we you know, do populate or have populated in the academic and professional pursuit of excellence, the huge development of the mind, but what about the heart? You know, I think that's what I'm taking from you there. Beautiful. Yeah. So, Rabbi, so when you made that choice then to not uh, actively pursue, you know, rabbinic school at that time, but to go into a professional life and um, continue to pursue, you know, success in the way, you know, society defines it, and you end up in McKinsey. That was your first job out of college, right? No, my first job was management consulting with corporate decisions. It was a spinoff of Bain. Okay. And then I, I did that for two years and then was one of the founders of Jewish Lights Publishing. I then went to Harvard Business School. So my first job after business school was McKinsey. I see, I see. And that, that foray you made into Jewish Light Publishing, so that was yeah. another attempt from you to bring your professional life and in a sense like your values yeah. and spiritual life together? It was really wonderful because the mission, it's so important to ask the question. And incidentally, the person who taught me this was in rabbinic school. He said, whenever you're pursuing something, start with a crystal clear understanding of what am I trying to accomplish? So what I was trying to accomplish was I wanted to go to Harvard Business School. I see. And actually, the odds of getting into Harvard Business School are higher with two years of consulting and two years of being an entrepreneur than they are four years of consulting. I see. I see. And, And I could not only increase my odds of getting into Harvard Business School, but I could actually do something that spoke to my heart which yeah. was do this Jewish Lights Publishing thing. So it was a win-win. By the way, I did have to take a pay cut. So no problem, though. That was that was so worth it at the time. And I'm still very close with the person who, who I worked for and, and with at that time, who's been a lifelong friend and mentor. Wonderful, wonderful. So now you're end up ending up at Harvard Business School. Let's come back to the McKinsey phase next. But um, 
you're at HBS, you've taken this turn where you are moving more and more into the conventional views of what you know, success is on the outside materially, economically, financially. And yet there's this other part of you that is perhaps still tugging at you. Is that right? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, how did you then in the HBS milieu, you know, stay true to both your inner call as well as what was happening on the outside? Well, I must say that the primary for sure was was being in business school and the next was being newlywed. But we all have we all have other things we can pursue. At the time, I would not say it was quite I would not say it was a, a minor. I want to get to this idea of majors and minors later. But yeah, I mean, I had interests in Judaism. I and I was on my Jewish path, and I'm a, I'm a stubborn person. So when I decide to do something, I'm one of those people who really does do it. Like the New Year's resolutions, if I make them, I pretty much do them. Which, as we all know, not everyone does that. That's my strength and my weakness. <laughs> so, uh, but being Jewish was just part of who I am and, and, and was then. And so I did some things, I got involved, I stayed kosher, I went to Harvard Hillel, Jewish student organization. We made in my family Shabbat every week. So there were things we were doing to keep that journey going. Let's say, call it that, to keep the journey going. Yeah, yeah. Does, uh, does some of the teaching and ideas and beliefs that you absorb from there end up informing and guiding the way you show up at, you know, at school and at work? Um, in, in that period of your life? Tell me more what you mean. Things I learned in business school or things well, from things you learned in your Judaic uh, kind of pursuits of uh, the teachings and the faith. Uh, did they end up sort of informing and shaping the way you were silently, if you want to call it, like, you know, expressing any of that in your relationships and the professional and academic world yeah. and the way you're showing up in class and in the office and all of that? It's a great question. I've never been quite asked it that way. And I have to tell you, what comes into my brain as you ask the question is yes and no. At that time in my life, I had not done enough Jewish learning to say that Jewish wisdom and Jewish learning were impacting my life because I hadn't done enough. I see. I had done very little actual Jewish learning. Yeah. I had, I had been doing Jewish practice yeah. and I had studied about the Jewish people and Jewish history, but I had not studied the Torah, the Talmud, the Jewish wisdom. Yeah. Um, so that being said, I would say my Jewish identity was was shaped and yeah. active and my Jewish participation in community. So my experience um, in business school, my experience as a professional was certainly influenced by my understanding of my identity. Yeah. You know, this this identity as a Jew, as someone who is a minority in a majority Christian culture, as someone who comes from a people with a particular story and a connection to a particular land, that absolutely had bearing, but not, not Torah. Torah meaning Jewish wisdom and teaching. I didn't have enough Torah in me to apply it to my life at that time. And therefore I was still very much lacking and empty. Or, uh, And by the way, there's a Midrash, this Jewish wisdom from 2000 years ago that says we're all born, we're all when we're in our parent and our mother with the entire Torah in us already. When we're born, we, we forget it all, and we're supposed to spend our life relearning it. Oh, that's beautiful. There's yeah. this primordial Torah that we all have yeah. that, that we experience in the womb, or we experience the act of our being created as potential lives. Either I didn't have it, or it was, it was yet to be unlocked. Let's call it that. 
Yeah, I see. Wonderful. So I think what I'm hearing from you is there was a sense of strong identity, you know, from the outside about what it meant to like practice the Jewish faith on the outside, but what it truly stood for and what the Torah's insights and wisdom was about your true identity and, you know, your relationship with the universe and with God, that was still taking form at that time in you. And then you and then you uh, graduate from Harvard Business School and you join McKinsey. That's right. And a few years into that is when I met you. And uh, we happen to be working on a project together. And I have the following memory that I want to share with our listeners and then also with you, which is that um, I had until then had a strong interest in wanting to pursue certain kinds of consulting projects with certain kinds of clients and certain kinds of business issues and verticals. And then we happened to be staffed in the same project. You were my engagement manager. And there was something so profound and deep that you sparked in me that gave me a real you know, kick every morning when I was showing up at work and engaging with the team and with you that I remember at the end of just those few months that we had together, I went to a staffing manager in Chicago and I was telling them that, look, uh, from here on, <laughs> I mean, just tell me what study Jevin is working on and just put me on that study. So... You may not have been maybe explicit in doing that connection between the inner and the outer, but I do think that you were kind of a unique force unto yourself, even, even at McKinsey. And my guess is that some of that was coming from this deep tilling of the inner soil that you were doing. Well, you're very nice. And I really, very, it's strong memories of working with you on that project. And I, it's funny, we came from such different backgrounds, but we had so much in common. And we were very complimentary. We had complimentary skills. Your your background, your expertise was so much vast, vastly higher than mine. And we figured out how to work together and, and end up at a much better place than, than we would have been if we had to do it alone. And that's to me what the whole goal of community is. So we were actually building a community of sorts on the team and your memories are fun and my memories are fun, not because the quality of the answer was so good. I don't even remember the impact we had, but I remember working with you. Yes, that's a beautiful way of putting it. You know, you're very gracious about um, what you claim to be like. My, you know, my capabilities, as I recall, you know, from that moment, um, you know, I come with a very strong analytics passion and background with, you know, data and modeling and research and all of that. Uh, but then what I really learned from you, which was invaluable to me, both in that moment and in life beyond, was the need, the importance and how to of stepping back you know, and looking at the big picture, connecting the dots, um, getting to the essence of what the core issues are, really trying to understand what, what, what the problem is that you're trying to solve and making the analysis you do serve that larger cause rather than be an end unto itself. Uh, for someone with my kind of technical kind of immersion in the ocean, you know, of information out there, this was a huge yeah. growth. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I do think that's when we, when we are in it, when we're praising McKinsey, or that type of work, that's it at its best, is really figuring out the definition of the problem and then keeping that big picture in mind. Um, yes. And that's helped me in my whole life uh, since then. So thank you for pointing that out. I feel the same way. Uh, I mean, I spent less years there than you did. Uh, in your case, you went all the way to becoming a partner at McKinsey. And so tell me a little bit about what your reflections are, as you recall, kind of your time at McKinsey. I mean, what was that uh, chapter in your life like for you? Well, first of all, let me just say, it was unimaginable in my parents' era that, that they would have been able to work at a company like McKinsey. 
I see. Just, just from the Jewish experience point of view, for a Jew to be able to work at and then be a partner in McKinsey was just an incredible breakthrough in the history of the Jewish people, a, a mm -hmm. firm at the pinnacle of corporate America. Mm -hmm. um, and it's even gotten more well-known since then. So it was just, it was just remarkable that my J strong Jewish identity would not be a, uh, a blocker from my getting the job and then my being advanced in the job. And certainly at the time, there were not a lot of Jews in the firm. But I felt, and I always felt supported and welcome, and I never felt personally that being Jewish at McKinsey was a negative. Yeah, and then I would just say the, uh, it was a very exciting time. There's two parts of the McKinsey mission, positive, lasting, sustainable value in our clients, attract, develop, retain the best people. The part that's most memorable for me was the people side. Hmm. I was told by a McKinsey director early in my career that there's three types of consultants. There's the frustrated general manager, the one who really wants to be a corporate CEO and is doing this because they wanted to be a CEO and they're somehow in this seat of advisor, but they get excited and power through their being an agent for the CEO. There's the problem solver, the person who just loves solving the hardest problems and gets sick and tired of problems and moves on to the next one. And there's tons of people like that. And, there's the, and then there's the person who loves helping people. Yeah. By the way, I think we all have, many of us have aspects of all three in us. The one that most resonated to me was the helping people one. And that's why I also think the side of McKinsey that most resonated for me was the people side. The teams I worked with, the people I learned from and with, I would say one of the teams I was on at McKinsey was the highest performing team I've ever been on in my, in my career. And every member of that team was people I just respected deeply and I've stayed in touch with over the years. And by the way, I disagreed with every one of them on a number of things in client related and world related. And that was part of the beauty of this team is I grew so much through being part of a group that disagreed, but respected each other. And I, I would say genuinely cared for each other too. It's a, it's a gift to be with people who are smart and driven and care about the world and know how to listen. I think one of the biggest problems in, in our world today is we don't have people who know how to listen. Um, I love the saying, by the way, we were created with two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so beautiful. That uh, three-part kind of description of what uh, the types of consultants there are out there, you know, it struck me that, uh, you know, the first one is, is what it is. Uh, the second and the third in particular, which are, you know, people who are actually really invested in the consulting process that they want to be there, but one, the problem solver and the other who wants to kind of help, help people. That's the, that's the mind and the heart, you know, that you spoke exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, again, as I recall our time together, one of the things, uh, Rabbi Jevin, that I found quite distinctive about you, which has stayed on my memory, is that you were quite comfortable in establishing and pushing for certain norms, for certain expectations about, um, you know, work-life balance and certain choices that you'd want to make, that you'd want us to make, to make sure that we were taking care of ourselves, taking care of our new ones, in addition to doing, you know, the best work that we, we could, you know, for our clients as well. And you had a certain comfort in affirming and asserting some of those values, uh, where others, uh, you know, who are still trying to like find the way around what's the path to success here at McKinsey might have uh, just been uncomfortable at the idea of, uh, you know, of, of that kind of uh, just 
overt assertion of like certain certain other commitments beyond beyond McKinsey. Can you can you talk about that for a moment? Like yeah. where did that kind of confidence and just reassurance come to you that I just want to be myself here? Well, first let me just say, um, there's I so you, I think you're accurate in in describing me that way. I don't think it's all positive. I am a believer in the whole life. You've heard me talk about the heart and the mind and being part of teams. Um, it, it was always a dream of mine to be a present and active parent and spouse. And I'm always reflective of, I'm, I'm always thinking about not being as good as I wish I had been at that, but, but caring deeply about it. That's why I love the McKinsey dual mission statement. It very much spoke to who I am. This dual mission statement of clients and people which often is complementary, but also can be not complementary, can be in conflict. I, I believe that the whole person is what we're trying to develop. And I actually believe that our teams develop, uh, do much better work when, they're, when we're worried about the whole person. Um, later in my career, when I was at Staples, we, had, we, we brought in someone whose expertise was, in, was, bring, was applying the learnings from um, the athletic world, the, the athlete world, to the corporate world, and it was called the corporate athlete. And the premise was just like athletes, we need to take care of our bodies, our minds, our spirits. We all know about athletes who pray and athletes who do yoga and, and athletes, by the way, who rest and don't train all the time. And so the premise was how do we apply that learning because elite athletes are obviously very good at what they do. That's what makes them elite. How do we apply that to the business world? And and as I reflect back on McKinsey that, and the team we were on, that was what I was hoping for. How could you possibly do your best problem solving if you're tired and you're resentful and your spouse is yelling at you and you feel guilty? It's impossible. Yeah. So let's, you know, let's cut down on the amount of work and let's take care of the person. Yeah. It's an awareness that is growing now in the business world, this notion of, you know, looking at people as whole people and looking and respecting and understanding the larger context and, you know, recognizing that if that larger context isn't in a good place, it's unlikely that they'll show up and do their best work. And you had it really early on. You know, folks, here we are talking about, you know, a period in the early to mid-90s. <laughs> you know, so you were definitely a pioneer in, in that regard. Um, By the way, as Hendra, I just want to mention, I decided very early on in my career, right at the beginning, that I would not work on the Sabbath. And this is a gift. This idea of we are unplugging, we are turning off, and we are turning to other matters in our lives is a real gift. And I actually was reading recently about investment banks that are forbidding any type of communication and work on certain days. And that's, I think, an attempt to help people unplug. Um, I really believe in this, even if you're not a religious Jew, one day a week should be a complete unplug. Wow. So turning off and turning Jew. I love that phrase. What is it that you do on that day that is most enriching to you when you turn off and turn to? Um, be with my family and be with myself. Create time for myself to pray, to read, to exercise, to sleep, and be with my family. On the Sabbath, it's traditional to actually have three festive meals, three festive meals, three beautiful meals. The one that's most prominent is the one on Friday evening. And we engage all of the senses. We engage sight and smell and taste and physicality, hugging. And, um, and of course, as the night comes on and you do that, the rhythms of the, of the world, of nature, inspire connection as well. It's the highlight of my, my highlight of my week is when I'm sitting together with my family 
and I'm able to put my hands on my daughters and I'm able to bless them. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing like that. That's why we're here. <laughs> how beautiful, how beautiful. I noticed that you have such a fondness and a commitment and an emotion in all things Judaism and the Jewish journey. And at the same time, Rabbi Jevin, I find that I feel very connected with you and I feel like you are very open. I feel that you have a way to celebrate the humanity in everyone, even those such as me who are coming from a very different faith journey. Absolutely. Well, I believe that truth is available to all people and there's more than one path to accessing truth. And when I say truth, call insert God, the ineffable, whatever the words are you want. And the Jewish people's mission and the Jewish people's story is one that both has the particular, the story of a particular family and then people. And it's very universal. It is not an accident that the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible begins with God creating a single human being. That's the ancestor of all of us. Let us create human in, in God's likeness and in God's image. And the whole book of Genesis, most of the first part of the book of Genesis is before there is a Jew. It's very unusual, by the way, that a religious tradition begins with the universal and not the particular. And I think that's a key message to us. So I, I hold both because I, I've been brought up in a society that's mostly not Jewish and still live here. It's part of who I am as well. And I must say, some of the people I felt closest to religiously in my life are not Jews. Yeah. Are not Jews. Some of the people I felt most closely religiously to are not Jews. So, and, and you are one of those. And you also have particular and universal. Mm -hmm. And some of my dear friends who are Catholic, by the way, they have universal and particular. And I, I feel great kinship with them and with you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it's one of the most attractive qualities that I find in in, uh, in in people is when they are deeply committed, deeply loyal, deeply immersed in something quite uplifting and beautiful as a path, as you're saying, but at the same time are able to step back from that and also honor and celebrate, you know, the paths that others are on. And uh, you you exemplify that beautifully. Yeah, thank you for bringing that metaphor up. That's, that's beautiful. Tendra, if I had been born in India to family like yours. I would have been on a path more similar to yours than the Jewish. <laughs> yeah, that's a thought experiment I also found myself conducting when I was young as a way to kind of understand the world. This notion that, uh, you know, some things are seemingly random acts of birth, that if one was just born somewhere else, one would have had to. And yet one wants to, in that case, uh, arrive at a philosophy, at an approach, at an attitude that uh, makes you feel like you can be true to that larger essence um, so such that, you know, it's not a random act of birth. And the universality aspect of what you're saying is, is that part of it, right? That, By the uh, way, I would say this heart-mind tension that we talked about being in sync, for me as a Jew, I also need to be in sync on my particular and universal. I can't be overly focused on the world and not the Jewish people. And I can't be overly focused on one and not the other either. And of course, there's what's appropriate for the time and for the yeah. moment. And yeah. for the world, right now, my role is Jewish spiritual leader. I'm obviously spending far more time on the particular than I am on the universal at this time in my life. Yeah. Folks, um, you might be noticing, Jevin, you have this capacity to really simplify some of the messy kind of calculus that we have to do from time to time in making choices and decisions. This notion of the heart and the mind and now the you know, the particular and the universal uh, as just like simplifying constructs, you know, through which to really understand 
your relationship with life, right? So that's beautiful. And there's another one you talked about, the minor and the major. We want to get that, you know, to yeah. that in the next few minutes. So, yeah. so let's talk about, let's, let's fast forward. You choose at some point to leave McKinsey, which is by itself not um, a surprise with, with the large amount of opportunities that open up for, you know, folks like you who've come to a partner position at McKinsey and then there are executive and other roles that you have outside. So you join Staples and then you move on to David's tea. At what point did you feel this, uh, this stirring from within rise in such a strong way that you made this bold move to move beyond and go to rabbi school? So when I was in my second year, or it was either first or second year at Staples as head of strategy, a job came available that I heard of, which was the CEO of Hillel International based in Washington. I got my name thrown into the ring because of my amazing experience with Hillel and my background, and I thought it was my dream job. And I ended up getting the job offer. And at the very, very last minute, I pulled out. And I pulled out because I wasn't yet ready to turn my back on this corporate career that had been going so well. And I wasn't, and it would have required moving and moving my whole family and traveling all the time. And it would have required cutting off the ability to make real money. So I, I, canceled, I canceled that opportunity, said no to it at the very end. But as part of that process, I had been asked by one of the major players at Hillel International, what do you do for your Jewish learning? And I was very embarrassed by my answer. My answer was in a nutshell, nothing. I said, well, I'm very busy and I'm involved in the Jewish community and I do this and that and I'm a parent and I'm the Staples executive. And they said, yeah, but what do you do for your Jewish learning? And the answer was nothing. So I decided that while I said no to Hillel, I was going to say I was going to address how, un how embarrassed I was by that question. And I, I went out and sought and found a teacher. And we started with Ivrit Min Kala, Hebrew from the beginning. I actually didn't know how to speak or translate Hebrew. And I met with my teacher every week for 10 years. And we, the goal was learn how to study and access the actual texts. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever done other than be a parent and a spouse. It was eye-opening. I felt like I was in a conversation with 3,000 years of Jewish wisdom of Jewish people. It was not studying an ancient book. It was engaging in the present. And it helped my business career. I, all these things I was pulling out of tradition to help me be an executive at Staples and then David's Tea. And I'll never forget my, and I'm so indebted to my teacher, Dr. Harvey Shapiro, I remember Harvey saying, I can't believe how much you love this. This is amazing. He said, do you realize how incredible it would be if you could be in rabbinic school and doing this all day? He said, it would be for you like being in a candy store. <laughs> and, and it rang the bell for me. Wait a minute. I'm actually doing what they do in rabbinic school. This is something I wanted to do when I was 21 years old. Maybe this should be my dream to really do this, not just imagine it. And it just so happened there was a great rabbinic school, a bike ride away from my home. Mm -hmm. So when I left, uh, when I left David's Tea, there were two pieces of advice I got. One was from my fidelity advisor, who said, "You can live the same lifestyle you've been living as long as you get a job when you graduate rabbinic school. You don't have to make a lot of money anymore." You've, you've saved enough to do that. And the other was a conversation with my rabbi who said, Jevin, you don't have to decide to be a rabbi and go to rabbinic school for five years and spend the rest of your life. All you have to decide is what you're doing in the coming fall for the next six months. 
Enroll in rabbinic school. Try out your dream. And if it doesn't work, you'll change. You'll go back. You'll answer the call of the search firms at that time. They'll still want you as a corporate CEO in six months. And it was brilliant. And it really reduced the stress of in myself and in my family about what I, my path would be. So I tried out rabbinic school. I put on hold the search firms that were calling. And it was it, Harvey was exactly right. It was like a dream come true. I couldn't believe that my full-time job was studying Torah. And I'll tell you the real moment of dream. One of my semesters I had to live and, and study in Jerusalem. And I remember my walk from my apartment to the yeshiva where I was studying. And it was along the streets of Jerusalem overlooking the walls of the old city as the sun rose. And I said to myself, this is honestly living a dream. To be, to be going to work to study the Talmud as the sun is rising over the old city of Jerusalem that Jews were not allowed to be in for 2,000 years and that we're now living in our homeland. And as far as I know, Hitendra, there isn't anyone in my family's history who ever studied the Talmud. As far as I know, there's no memory in the family of anyone who spoke Hebrew or knew how to study a Jewish text. I felt like I was being redeemed. Yeah, you were just talking about how being at McKinsey was kind of a path-breaking thing for the Jewish community of your generation versus uh, your parents. And, and now you're breaking new ground in a whole different direction uh, as well. And that's, that's so beautiful. Um, and uh, did you feel that, in fact, the Torah was always there within you when you started to go through this uh, journey and you were just awakening to it more than learning it from the outside? I mean, like many questions you ask that is so good, the answer is yes and no. The intellectual aspect of Torah was not within me. That really was a treasure that I need to go. Most treasures, as we imagine them generically, are not just, they're either in front of us and we can't see them, or they're not in front of us and we have to dig for them and explore for them. Either analogy, whichever one you like. I believe the, the mental, the mind, the, the specifics was a treasure I needed to either uncover or open my eyes to, etc. But the Torah... The physical aspects of Torah, the yearning, the desire, the quest for love, of wanting to be loved, that for sure was in me. I think it's in every one of us. And Torah in its fullest sense is not just the intellectual. It is this, this love. I'll just share with you, by the way, one of the 24 books in the Torah is the Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim. And if you read it, it is a, it is a racy love story, it's highly sexual highly, highly sexual, like shockingly so. And the greatest rabbi of all time, Rabbi Akiva, is quoted as saying, this book, Song of Songs, is the holy of holies. And of course, the question was, why? Why did he say that? And I think there's two reasons. One is that it was such a racy book that we needed to put in the name of the most important rabbi that it's a holy book in order to keep it there. Um, very Kind of very logical reason, right? To just, because there clearly would have been a stream of rabbis who would have said, impossible that this book comes in there. We use Rabbi Akiva's name, boom, if you quote Rabbi Akiva, it's there. But the other reason why it's the Holy of Holies, the much better reason, in my opinion, is the ultimate highest form of religious experience is to feel love, to feel love for God and for self. And the only, the best analogies we have for love between us and God is the deepest, deepest love we would have between us and our beloved. 
And that's why this poetry, which in my opinion is the best poetry of all time, is the most deepest, holiest work in Torah. I really like that. I've similarly found um, in the mystics uh, across many of the faiths, this hunger to want to find a way to communicate to the rest of the world, like, guys, you have no idea what the possibilities are in human consciousness, in your relationship with the universe. And they have to use these very material and physical and here and now kind of metaphors to try to get get it across. And they can't be the average everyday experience. So they have to find something which is very uplifting and very profound and deep and rich. And so, and sometimes, you know, it's about intoxication and it's about being drunk. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, and the other thing is, and, and one of my teachers in rabbinic school, the great um, Dr. Michael Fishbang um, from the University of, of, of Chicago, his view is that we all have these peak moments in our lives when we can describe them in language that might sound like spirituality. It might be at the top of a mountain. It might be when you're having the most amazing intimacy. It might be when you were just elected McKinsey partner, whatever those peak moments are, when you feel something within you. Our mission then is to is to have everyday moments filled with the same type of spirituality as we have at the peak moments. How do we how do we make the mundane, the everyday life experienced is as holy as those peak moments. I love it. That's our mission, particularly as people who are living in modernity in a secular world, but wanting to also live as spiritual human beings. Yeah. I've seen that in you, you know, Rabbi Jamin. I mean, over the years as I've known you and, you know, as we have gone, you know, down our own paths and haven't necessarily had moments of professional, you know, reconnection, we've stayed in touch, you know, over the years typically in very punctuated, you know, short burst, you know, conversations about, you know, catch-ups. And I always uh, go back and tell my wife, like, it's, it's incredible how, you know, how Jevon is just um, so alive and able to make so much of so little time and be so directed, be so heartfelt, make that really deep connection and then move on to his next commitment and his next commitment. So, so I, uh, I've always admired that quality in you of maximizing the potentialities in every moment. Well, you're in, you're, you are inspiring and I'm very grateful to hear you say yeah. that. Um, yeah. Thank you for that, Matendra. Yeah, I know. I'm, you know, I'm grateful as well. So uh, coming back then, so, so you're in rabbi school now. Um, can, you, can you share with us like what was like one of the most memorable and special experiences for you in moving your life in this very, very radically and, you know, rich new direction? Like what, what is one memory or one surprise or one something that uh, would be shareable with us? Well, certainly that experience in Jerusalem, those walks from, yes. my, from my apartment as the sun is rising. Incidentally, so much of religious experience in Jewish literature and Jewish and rabbinic literature is while you're walking and is at those liminal moments when light and darkness are are intermixed. Um, in my opinion, that's far more conducive to the spiritual experience than sitting in a synagogue, which by the way, I love synagogues, but those peak moments are far more likely at these, at these liminal moments. That's certainly memorable, but I will tell you also, the peak moments took place for me in prayer, in community. There were, there were many times in the Beit Midrash, the study hall, which also was our prayer hall in rabbinic school, when our community of 
50, 60 people, fellow seekers, all with different stories, but each, each very passionate. The voices joining together in heartfelt prayer, I literally felt lifted, lifted. And it was always, by the way, Hitendra when we were singing. Mm, yeah. And there were moments when I was praying on that semester in Jerusalem, literally touching the Western Wall, the holiest place in Judaism. And my, my study partner had taught me some verses from the Song of Songs that, that spoke about the dove in the wall, in the cracks of the wall, the dove, the dove um, hides itself in the cracks of the wall. And there was, there's infinite meaning in that verse for me. The dove in the cracks of the wall. It's hidden, but, but we can imagine it. We can perhaps peek into it and see it. And that to me is our spiritual challenge and mission and opportunity. How do we see doves in the cracks of the wall? Uh, and, and studying that and learning that with people we care about. So those were, those were peak, peak, peak moments. I've never felt that way before. Yeah, yeah. So um, for those of us who may visit Israel but do not have the um, lifelong connection with the, you know, with the Jewish faith, but still see it so much as the holy land and can intuitively feel a great pull and stirring that happens when we go there, which has certainly happened with me in a uh, visit that I made there with my wife and daughter and mother. Um, any guidance for us as to what to go and explore there as a way to even even from that non-jewish kind of background you know tap into a little bit of that liminal experience well uh, like we said earlier it depends on what are we trying to accomplish there's there is a way of experiencing the land of israel that is a particular faith based faith-based way of experiencing on a religious mission and people of all faiths and backgrounds can do that, particularly Jews, Christians, and Muslims, but I think all faith traditions. And we can tell, you can tailor your experience to your faith tradition. There's also a way of experiencing the Jewish story as inspiration and for you, even if you're not Jewish, that's unique. The Jewish story, the Jewish journey, the, the return. We don't have stories of people leaving their land for 2,000 years and then coming back and repop and and staying there all along in small communities, but, but not having control and, and power for 2,000 years. Um, and then there is this incredible modern country in the middle of you know a small little democracy that's very rich now and very successful in technology and agriculture and water and the environment and in many, many other ways. That's like a miracle. It's a miracle that a tiny little country could emerge in um, in an, as an island in the midst of something that's not like that, like what it is. There's also that experience. And I will say there's also the experience of just an intensely beautiful um, opportunity to see a lot of diversity in a small place. Um, within four or five hours, you can be in forests and deserts and ocean and mountains. You could be in Bedouin villages and you could be in a super famous modern art gallery. And you can do all of that in a car, yeah, yeah, in a few hours. So this, this for me, it's uh, for me, it's home. It's it's a spiritual home, and it's and it's a dream come true for a people to want and yearn for a return. It's it's remarkable that we can be here. It's a miracle. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. Uh, I have to say that um, 
the four of us being there, the point would be wrapping up. Uh, we were very clear, very clear that this has to be just one of, uh, if God so permits, you know, several visits back because uh, it, it had a huge impact on us. And we, we felt as though, yeah, you know, part of us was actually coming home. It was so beautiful, the infusion of spirituality in, in, in that land. Um, so, so thank you for sharing uh, those, those ideas. And there are things you've shared here, which I think would be a value for us in pursuing uh, when we go back there. Um, By the way, Hitendri, you were mentioning earlier my, how I can somehow simplify things. There's a, a whole nother way of looking at, the, uh, at Israel that's very different than what I just said. There are four Israels. Okay. There is... There is the land of Israel. Right. There is the country Israel. There is the government of Israel. Right. And there is the people Israel. They're all four things to experience. And they're all four things to be in relationship with. And like everything else in life, relationships can be complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Beautiful. Um, I may, I may want to propose adding a fifth, which is the uh, Israel that is within you. <laughs> you know, we, we can feel that. We can see that. It was coming alive in what you were just yeah. sharing in these last seven right. minutes. Yeah, yeah. How beautiful. Uh, so, so, Rabbi, can you talk to us a little bit about that experience of being a kid in a candy store? You know, I relate to that. I'm feeling a little bit like that in the present moment, which is we've got a few minutes to go. <laughs> and I'd love to draw some of that candy from you of all that you have soaked in, in a way that would be relatable and applicable to the lives, you know, in that universal sense for any or all of us who are, you know, ultimately seekers, regardless of what faith or non-faith backgrounds we have. So can you, can you share with us some insights, some stories, some teachings from uh, within your faith journey that uh, you think could really benefit us in the present times? Well, Thank you for asking the question. First of all, let me say, I think we've covered some of it. So this idea of heart and mind, this idea of, of religion being highly sensual, religion that's revealed from within us, but also discovered from without us, the particular and the universal. And then I'll mention just two other things. I mean, I could speak for hours and hours. On, you know, you're asking me the best kind of question. I'll just mention two others. One is... Just a, a further explanation of, of what we've just been doing. I believe it's very Jewish, and I think universally true too, to understand the dialectic. To be a religious human being is to live in dialectics. And Judaism is highly, highly focused on that. When you actually look at the beginning of the Bible, we have two creation stories. We have God creating the world in seven days with human being created on the sixth day. We have the Garden of Eden where pretty much the first thing God does or one of the first thing God does is put a single human being in the garden. And in the first story, we are commanded to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule over the earth, over everything. And in the second story, we're commanded to guard and protect, to guard and protect, not to rule over. That, that in my opinion, just the first two chapters of Genesis, of Bereshit, are the foundation of all, all religious possibilities. And, and it, right at the core is this dialectic of the twos and the two, the two things we're marched with, the two creation stories. And just to, to further elucidate that, the person who's the father of, of all Jews, of only all Jews, is Jacob. Abraham has two children, one of whom is a Jew and one of whom is not. Isaac has two Jews, 
two children, one of whom is Jew and one is not. Jacob only has Jewish children. Jacob is born with the name Jacob, and he's eventually given by God the name Israel. There are two people in that Jacob. There's Jacob and there's Israel. And if we had time, we could go through the story of how he, how he becomes Israel. And Israel, of course, is our name, the name of our people. A Jew is, is Am Yisrael, people Israel. And of course, our country, our state, our government, all the things we just said. Um, to be a Jew is to live in twos. And that's why for me, my whole story of business Jevon and Rabbi Jevon, I'm realizing is one Jevon. And spiritual Hatendra and Professor Hatendra are one Hatendra. We have to cultivate both sides. Unfortunately, the society we live in is highly biased towards us cultivating one of our sides. That is sad. And it is our, in my opinion, our mission in life to cultivate the two, not just one. Yeah. The other thing I'll just mention. Rabbi, sorry to jump in, but um, I moved to just share um, my spiritual teacher, Yogananda. He, uh, he once said, you know, be in the world, but not of the world. You know, the same kind of di dialectic, you know, of uh, being being invested very much in the here and now and the material and physical experience of the world and getting to serve and devote and advance it and the right, but also being not of the world, being being very anchored from within in, in soul and spirit and your connection with the universe. Well, that's right. And in fact, well, let me let me move on to the next one. I don't want to take up too much time on this. It's an amazing thing. And if people are interested in text that can help explore this dialectic, it would be my great pleasure to, uh, to recommend them. Um, the other thing is right at the beginning of Genesis, um, in the first story of Genesis, we have on the sixth day, the creation. Of, so all of all the worlds created, the, the, the sun, the moons, the, the waters, the land, the animals, the insects, the fields, the trees, etc., all of it is created. And then we have this amazing, amazing thing where it says God created human in God's image. In the image of God, God created human, male and female. And God says, let us create human. Let us. And the, the question that has perplexed us, us, you know, Jews, anyone who studied these texts for our lives, is what does it mean when the text says, let us create human in our image and in our likeness. Who is the we? Who is the us? And like all Jewish texts that, are, that raise questions, we look to the sages of the ages to first tell us what they think. We then can determine what we think. And two of the great sages completely disagree on what the us is. Mm -hmm. One of them says that the us is God partnering with Mother Earth. Because after all, human, Adam, means earth in Hebrew. So for those of us who want to see the spiritual in the environment and in the natural, it's right there. Human is the joint venture of God and the earth. And the other one says, no, it's not that. The us is referring to the angels. God is consulting with the angels before God creates human. If God is using the word we... <laughs> And if God is consulting, what does that tell us about us? And if God is creating one human being in God's image, that means that every human being is created in God's image. And if the only spiritual religious wisdom we had was that God says we and us, and God creates one human being that we all descend from, how much better would the world be if we all understood just that? 
Wow, that is powerful. That's powerful. I, I, uh, it'll be hard uh, put for me to pick one of these from the other as interpretations. They're both so beautiful. How does this inform the way you guide your students at Boston University around the practical paths that they need to navigate in today's, um, you know, time of great ferment, time of great change? How does the Torah and you know, these teachings um, and you and your role as rabbi you know, seek to invite them to take on some practical course that will, you know, I guess, bring bring that fusion between who they are on the inside and who they are on the outside? Well, certainly the things we've discussed here today, sharing my excitement for them. But I'll say I, I view myself less as a guide and more as a supporter. I'm here, I'm here to help students know they're not alone. Finding yourself, you know, your whole mission of your organization to, to be in touch with yourself I think before someone can worry about the world, they have, to, they have to make sure that they are safe, that they belong, that they're mentally capable. So my main mission when I meet with students yeah. is helping them find a way of accessing this Jewish story, this Jewish community, this Jewish wisdom in a, in a way that makes sense for them. But, you know, I, I don't know what it will be for them. Yeah. I had a parent call me yesterday to say, my child is not coming to Hillel to pray, and I'm, I'm very upset, and can you help get my child to come to Hillel to pray? And why are they not coming to Hillel for dinner on Friday nights? They're coming home instead. I said, well, first of all, can we just pause? It's beautiful that your child is going home for Shabbat dinner. <laughs> I don't view that as a problem. And yeah. then I said, it's obvious based on what you're telling me, your child doesn't like formal communal prayer. So stop telling them to go do something they don't like. If I were you, I would say to your child, the only thing I would love for you to do is to do something Jewish. Could you please find that something that's right for you? <laughs> and that's my mission to students. I want to help you find something that's right for you. Yeah. And by the way, our slogan, our, our, our tagline at BU Hillel is come as you are, make it your own. <laughs> you are make it your own and yeah. that's all filled with uh with meaning and with beauty rabbi this has been a beautiful conversation you did leave us with that one intrigue about the major and the minor perhaps yeah. we can end on that note and so i'm yeah. going to give you the last word here for our listeners this has been something so joyful and i'm just so grateful for the education that we got along the way as well both about your quest to um, really, really become the authentic pursuer of truth that you are, but also the uh, yeah window and glimpse you've given us into these very stirring ideas from Judaism. So thank you for that. But the last word is yours. Tell us about major and minor. Well, I, I really think it's just true that we should be striving to have beautiful lives, not just beautiful careers. And, and most of us are blessed with 24 hours in a day. And most of us are blessed not all of us, most of us are blessed with the freedom to choose. We may not realize it, but with freedom to choose what to do with our time. One possibility that a friend once told me was, I'm going to only work on making money now so that later in my life I can do something else or what I want to do. That's certainly a possibility. But I personally believe that we have the ability to have in our lives one thing that's what we quote do during most of the working hours. We still have space in addition to taking care of our bodies and, and praying and, and being good parents and spouses and partners, whatever those things are we choose, I think there's space for at least one thing that's important and large that I would call a minor, equivalent to what you would imagine in college. 
I'm majoring in X and I'm minoring in Y. X is I take more courses and that's the thing that I'm most known for and the professors I spend the most time with. But a minor can be meaningful and meaningfully beautiful. And I would say during my, certainly during my years of Jewish learning, those 10 years of learning Hebrew in text, my minor was Jewish learning. And right now I will tell you, my major was business, whichever the role was. My minor was Jewish learning, Jewish study, Jewish communal work. Right now my major is being a rabbi at Boston University. And my minor is being a board member of Carter's, which I love. I love this business. I love my colleagues. Uh, I think the management team's fantastic. Um, so my question to each of you is, first of all, what is my life goal? What am I trying to accomplish in life? And how will I have a full and beautiful life? And my second question is, if you're not able to move your major to something that gives you great joy and purpose and direction, what minor can you create in your life that can give you that joy and purpose and direction? And you never know when your minor could become your major. Ah, that's so beautiful. I love that thought of your minor becoming a major, keeping your minor going, even while you're deeply invested in your major. So much power and beauty in, in those ideas. And your life is a shining example of how that, you know, how that has played out. Um, you know, on behalf of all our listeners, I wish you really well, Rabbi Jevin, both for yourself, for your family, for the community that you're serving and the quest you're on. It is a beautiful quest, one that has inspired me, even in this previous iteration, where there was a different major and different minor from how you've inverted it now. Thank you for all these beautiful ideas that you've shared with us today and the inspiration you've given us, both from exploring truths, but also living truths, you know, in your life. And um, I look forward to having you back in intersections um, at a subsequent moment and opportunity as well that we can get together. Well, what I can say to you is you are an inspiration for doing this and for making all of this available to people. And I want to send you not only my thanks, but my blessings for, yeah. for all of the beauty that you're bringing into the world. Very grateful. Take care. Yeah. Be well. Best. Yeah. You too. So friends, there is so much power and inspiration guidance to take from this conversation with Rabbi Eagle. Um, here are 10 points that I'm carrying away from it. Uh, the first is that if you surround yourself with the right people, you just never know when certain very important outer shifts can come to you. In the case of Rabbi Eagle, when he was in college, he talks about how there was this rabbi who put his arm around him and said, you know, join us. You're not alone. And he felt in the company of kindred spirits from the Jewish community who supported him. He felt he wasn't alone. It helped instill in him a deep sense of belonging. That loneliness went away. So that importance of the right company as a way to create outer shifts. Then there was the inner shift. And the inner shift in him came, in a sense, much later when in um, rabbi school, he started to learn to pray really effectively. And he went like deep within. And this practice of prayer, he talks about how it was like eye-opening for him. Um, and, he, and he talks about how it was like his favorite activity in rabbi school. It wasn't as much reading the scriptures. It was in tuning himself from within. He said, I love learning, but prayer was off the charts. So the inner shifts caused by some discipline from within, in his case, prayer. Um, the third th learning that I'm taking away is this notion of these three legs of the life stool. He talked about how, you know, on the one hand, what we want is 
economic outcomes, financial outcomes, the practical side of us, then we want this kind of learning and education and just kind of making sure that we can become, in a sense, like the best versions of ourselves in intellectual life and beyond. And then there's a third, and the third is this questing that we have for meaning and purpose and the search for the ineffable, you know, the hard to express and tangibilize, but that is something so deep within us. So the three legs of the stool and how they needs to be held in balance. We can't ignore any one of them. That's the third learning. The fourth learning for me is this notion that, you know, sometimes it takes a while for certain seeds to germinate. You know, in the case of uh, Rabbi Eagle, you know, there he was, you know, at Dartmouth and he had these pulls of wanting to go to rabbi school, etc. But then he had this practical side of him and this social pull that he felt in terms of the expectations of society. And that is what carried him forward for the next several years because until he finally got himself to a place where what was like being stirred from within, the seeds that had been sown actually started to germinate, you know, in a sense, much later in his life. Although he says that, you know, that's always you know, what I had been dreaming of doing to go to rabbi school and then beyond. Um, the fifth learning is, um, you know, he talks about how um, in consulting, he, he saw three kinds of consultants, you know, those that are driven by power, those that were driven by the deep desire to solve problems, and those that were driven by people. Um, I, I like that kind of way of thinking about, you know, our own internal motivations. What are we looking for? Is it power? Is it problem solving? Or is it people? The sixth learning is this notion of aligning the mind and the heart. You know, this idea that sometimes we get too perhaps maybe caught up in the mind and we are thinking in very, very practical and aspirational and ambitious terms, but perhaps society is pulling us in that direction. But then our heart, you know, our heart is yearning for something deeper and beyond. And, you know, are we, are we you know, getting that connection as well with what we want, not just, you know, from a job, but also from life. Right? And he also talks, sometimes the opposite is true. Some of us get too carried away by the heart and too prematurely pushed and perhaps too deep away in a certain heart-based direction without keeping the practical constraints and considerations in mind about what our role and duties are in society. So this idea of balancing and aligning the heart and the mind. Um, he talks about the seventh learning, uh, the whole person kind of view uh, in how we manage and lead. The idea that when he was McKinsey, which I saw in him firsthand, that he was really paying attention to making sure that people were being able to bring the best versions of themselves. And for that, they needed periods of rest and they needed um, you know, rejuvenation of their spirits. And, and that he, he's always attentive to that idea of like, you know, how are you doing with regard to your energy? And, and, and uh, he says, like, you know, even if you're not a religious Jew, one day a week should be like a complete unplugging. Uh, to help you do that kind of rejuvenation from within. Because he said, like, you know, how, how, how are you going to be able to do your best problem solving if you're tired and resentful and your spouse is yelling at you and you're feeling guilty, right? Um, so the whole person kind of idea. The eighth idea I'm carrying away is this beautiful unifying notion of the universal and the particular that I can be very identified with the particular, the form, the commitment, the path that I am on, that I have been perhaps uh, either born into or chosen for myself in a very conscious way because I'm really drawn and invested in that community, in that service, in that path. And at the same time, there's this zooming out more universal association and sense of service and commitment, I feel, to the world at large and to being tuning in and um, connecting with and celebrating and appreciating various different paths and traditions that are out there, the universal, but also the particular, being able to move back and forth fluidly between those two. Um, the ninth learning for me is the major versus the minor. This idea that sometimes in life we get you know, all consumed and go in a certain direction, but if you feel that tug from your heart for something beyond, something richer, then maybe that can become a minor. Maybe you can be doing some amount of you know, conscious, 
you know, deliberate investment in that area as well. And then this notion that sometimes your minor can over time become your major. If you've been you know, sowing those seeds, watering that plant, you just never know when one takes over from the other. So the 10th and final learning for me is this beautiful idea of living the dialectic. And he talks about how he says to be a Jew is to live in twos. That's why for me, he says, you know, my whole story of the business Jevon and Rabbi Jevon is actually one Jevon. And he said, like, the spiritual Hitendra and the professor Hitendra is like one Hitendra. We have to cultivate both of these sides. You know, unfortunately, he says the society we live in is highly biased towards us cultivating one of these sides. And, and that is sad. You know, he says, in my opinion, our mission is to cultivate both of these, not just one. And he talks so um, in, in such an inspiring and encouraging way, I think, for any or all of us who have felt a little bit of that spiritual spark, but we are also you know, engaged very much in material pursuits and accomplishments. You know, he talks about how he says it was eye-opening for me. You know, when he started to really study the, the Jewish you know, faith and the, the Hebrew language, and he says it was like I was having this conversation with 3,000 years of Jewish wisdom, not studying it you know, just as an ancient book, but like engaging with it in the present. That's the, that's the dialectic part. He's taking this old, deep, timeless truths, but he's applying them in the present. He says, it helped my business career. You know, all these things, you know, I was pulling out of my tradition to help me become more effective as an executive at Staples and then at David T's, right? And so he says, like, you know, our mission needs to be this, this fusion of these two, and that gives you this notion of a peak experience. In other words, peak experiences are not just like one-time highs we face when certain breakthroughs come to us in life. Peak experience is what the questing in life is all about, that every moment is an opportunity for us to cultivate that sense of almost like a peak inspirational high. And, um, and that's it. You know, I just want to leave you with this uh, final point of inspiration that, um, you know, as he said, like, how can we make the mundane every day life experience as holy as those peak moments.